Well, hello, this is Ann Altas, your podcaster, your blogger, and it's now two days after the election. I was out running this morning, and I, you know, sometimes your mind opens up and you start to think in new ways because you're out outdoors, you're running through the forest, you're looking at the sunrise, and you see things in a new way. I was listening to music. What was I listening to? I was listening to all my songs on shuffle. It came on Bob Dylan, Baby Let Me Follow You Down, some old recording, the one where he talks about being at Harvard. I don't know why that's in my, that's in amongst all my things, but uh, I was thinking about the election. I'd been up since really before three and had written a lot of posts, some all of which I'll read to you in this podcast. But um, I realized This is my take on the election. I realized that I won, that I got what I wanted. I chose not to vote, and I voted for nothing. And what we have is essentially the nothing, the gridlock, the win that isn't much of a win, the new president that isn't much of a really uh, any sort of leader at all. It's it's an emptiness. It's a, a void. (laughs) <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm at peace with that. I like that. So um, worked out well for me. I'm quite optimistic. I'm feeling good because I really didn't want any of these people to have power. So um, I'm going to start with a post which, wa- which went up at 3.18 yesterday. House Democrats stunned that they didn't oust a single GOP incumbent. This is from Politico. Quote, by Wednesday morning, party officials and the rank and file were in panic mode as they awaited the results of nearly 20 members of the Democrats' historic freshman class that handed the party control of the House just two years ago. And already they were saying goodbye to at least half a dozen of their centrist Democratic colleagues who were stunned by GOP challengers on Tuesday, including... Abby Finkenauer of Iowa and Donna Shalala of Florida. It's a dumpster fire, said one lawmaker who declined to be named. Democrats were already engaging in rapid-fire finger-pointing. Several centrist Democrats blamed their more progressive colleagues, saying moderates in Trump-leaning districts couldn't escape their socialist shadow. So you see what's going on. The Democrats may have control of the House, but they have less power than before. Um, And uh, they're not going to get the Senate. So this is putting them in a position of being stuck with the power, but not able to really use it very much. Here's another piece in Politico that I put up on the blog at 3.30 yesterday afternoon. Quote, Biden looks screwed, even if he wins at a minimum. The lackluster performance of the Democratic Senate candidates would hamstring a President Biden from day one. This campaign was always a referendum on Trump rather than an affirmative endorsement of Biden and his agenda. That dynamic already cut against Biden claiming a strong, positive mandate. He needed a crushing rejection of Trump to strengthen his case. He also needed the Senate final results that fall short of a massive rejection of Trump, as seems likely, 
would fail to trigger the repudiation of Trumpism in the Republican Party that many Democrats and a minority of Republicans had hoped for. Whatever the final numbers, Trump's appeal to half the country has proven to be durable, close quote. And I added, the article doesn't even mention the role of Trump himself. As ex-president, he'll be liberated to speak, building some new media operation. He'll be the Democrats' nemesis. And won't he be the front-runner for the GOP nomination in 2024? And let me add that if he had been re-elected, everyone would be mad at him, still all stirred up about him, rioting in the streets, claims that this is racism and how terrible it all is that he's still president, but he would also be on track to be done being president in four years. He would need to go away, and he would be pummeled the entire time, and he would still have the COVID pandemic to deal with plus other problems. Now, assuming he loses, he'll be free. And so many people are still very interested in him. And he's a much stronger, more exciting, entertaining character than Biden can be. And even if Biden steps aside, then uh, Kamala Harris could be. So we'll be looking at him and he'll be able, free of having to do the actual job of being president, He'll be able to lean into what he does best, which is speaking, speaking about politics and criticizing people who are in power. So out of power, he'll be able to maximize his great capacity to criticize those who do have power. He'll have millions of people listening to him, excited about him. And um, uh, won't that make things tough for the Democrats? So I think that will... Well, I, I like that. So for me, as I said, I feel like I won. Trump, I, lo I like to listen to Trump speak. I enjoy his speech. I don't particularly like his having the power. I don't know that I trust him. And I know that I don't trust him to get things right and to really focus on all the work that needs to be done to be a more, I'd like a more boring, workmanlike president, something closer to nothing. I don't want a big activist president. Um, I'd, I'd like someone more dull, but also competent. I'm afraid Biden isn't really competent, and I don't, I don't trust him either. But with Trump freed from the obligations of doing the actual job of being president, he can completely be about speaking. And once he's not the one in power, he can be critical of the people who are exercising power. You know, when you're actually the president, you can't just take pot shots at everybody. You're the one with the most power, so why aren't, why aren't you solving all the problems? Who are you criticizing? Do some positive things. But once he's out, he's out of power. He can say that he would have done better. Oh, look how what a terrible job the president is doing and how much better I would have been, he's able to say. Similar to the way he was criticized by Biden and others during the campaign. And, you know, since he's not on a four-year track, since he didn't win, he's not on a four-year track to be ousted forever by term limits. He's, he's still there doing whatever exciting media enterprise he starts up and also threatening to come back and run again in 2024 and be like uh, Grover Cleveland. Grover Cleveland did that. There's only one president who got cut off after the first term, was out of power, came back and won. That's possible. He might want to do that. It has been done before, but hasn't been done in quite a long time. Now we 
arrive at the posts from this morning, and this first post went up at, um, let's see what time it was, 4.18, uh, and it's called, The New York Times Handles a Metaphor. The, the New York Times Mishandles a Metaphor. So here's a headline in the New York Times that I read and misunderstood. Democrats' blue wave crashed in state houses across the country. And I said, it matters more than usual which party controls the state legislatures, because 2020 was a census year, and it's time once again for the partisan game of redistricting. If you think you only care about Congress, the House of Representatives is at stake as these lines are drawn, creating safe districts and competitive districts for Republicans and Democrats. I hadn't noticed any reports about state legislatures, so I did a search. What came up first was this headline in the New York Times, Democrats' blue wave crashed in state houses across the country. When I see wave, I picture a real wave, an ocean wave. So if it crashes on something, it hits with power and inundates. So I thought the Democrats had done very well at the state legislature level. Then I realized this is the problem of the dying metaphor that George Orwell wrote about in politics in the English language. It began as a vivid image. And some of us still see the image in our head when we read it but it's used routinely by some writers. It's just a go-to phrase, and they don't coordinate the image with the words they use alongside it. In this New York Times headline, the verb crash was chosen to go with blue wave, perhaps because it feels like a strong action verb, or perhaps because it seems to go with wave. Waves do crash. But here, crash doesn't properly express what happens when waves crash. If a wave crashes on a building such as a state house, the wave succeeds. The building is dominated. The headline uses crash more like the way the stock market crashes. It just collapses. It doesn't collapse. It doesn't crash on something. Notice that the headline has the wave crashing in rather than on state houses. The preposition indicates that the writer wasn't picturing the action of a wave at all. How can a wave crash in a building? And I know if I went looking on the internet, I could find some kind of an image of a wave moving and crashing inside a building. And I found a pretty interesting, I don't really know how they did this, but a depiction of a wave inside a glass-walled building where the wave crashes over and over. But if you have the idea of a blue wave, the blue wave that Democrats had wanted would have just, like a tsunami, come in and crashed over the structure that they wanted to take over. The wave would be dominant, and the most dominant thing a wave does is crash on something. But uh, the headline writer used crash next to wave, meaning crash like collapse, like it didn't happen or it wasn't a big wave. It was just a little, a little uh, lapping of uh, nothing. So I did have a moment where I thought, oh, the Democrats got control of the redistricting. But no, it's the opposite. Quote, on Wednesday, the results weren't, were not yet final, but the National Conference of State Legislatures, which tracks state, le which tracks state level races, said there were changes or potential shifts of control in just four chambers, the New Hampshire House and Senate, which the Republicans took back from the Democrats, and possibly the House and Senate in Arizona, though the contests for those chambers were still too close to call. Um, he, 
And the text of this article says, he said it was the first time since 1946 that so few chambers were changing hands. And I said, he? Who he? There's no, this is a badly edited article. It's not just the headline. It's also, they start saying he when they haven't identified the person. They just said National Conference of State Legislatures, which is a formidable operation. And it can speak, but only through particular people. But so who spoke for it? In, in the next sentence, we see a person named Tim Story, an expert with the National Conference of State Legislatures. So it didn't the uh, writing got mixed around so that the person they were quoting was identified after they started calling him he. That was very confusing. But anyway, this person, Tim Story, the expert at National Conference of State Legislatures, said, this is crazy in that almost nothing has changed. It really jumps off the page. That's an, there's another one of those uh, cliches, dying metaphors. It jumps off the page. Who first said that jumps off the page? In other words, you're reading something that's so exciting that you feel that it jumped out. It jumped at you. It's just like it really sticks out. It, it, it jumps off the page. <laughs> it, continuing to quote the New York Times article, Democrats failed to take control of the Texas House from Republicans, a prize that had seemed within reach. They also lost the battle for North Carolina's House and Senate, chambers they had set their sights on, after years of Republican control, and they failed to flip the Iowa House, according to the NCSL, National Conference of State Legislatures. Democrats also failed to flip the houses in Pennsylvania and Michigan, Mr. Story said. He said Democrats had achieved some victories, like preventing Republicans from gaining a supermajority in the Wisconsin Assembly, which will stop the legislature from overriding any veto of electoral maps by the Democratic governor, and the election of Jennifer, Judge Jennifer Brunner to the Ohio Supreme Court reduces the court's conservative majority from four to three, he said. Before Tuesday's election, Republicans controlled about three-fifths of all 98 partisan legislative chambers. If no other chambers flip as new results come in, that Republican dominance will not change. It was a huge night for state Republicans, said David Abrams, Deputy, Deputy Executive Director of the Republican State Leadership Committee, which focuses on electing Republicans to state offices. Democrats spent hundreds of millions of dollars to flip state chambers. So far, they don't have a damn thing to show for it. And I added, uh, the difficulty of flipping a legislature to the party that is winning statewide elections is evidence that the existing districting has given an advantage to the party that controlled the line drawing last time around. And now let me comment on my ability to affect the acoustics of this podcast. Today, I'm back in my closet. I have a big walk-in closet, and I have lots of clothes all around me, so that should be deadening the sound in a good way. But I noticed as I was reading at one post, at one point, I got a little cold, and I, I zipped up my uh, the little fleece jacket that I'm wearing, So, and that was right in front of the microphone, so maybe you heard my zipper. Uh, that was just, that wasn't me taking off my pants, that was me trying to get more warm in the jacket area. Also, maybe you heard rumbling sounds. That's the sound, even though I have the window closed here, 
Yeah, I have a window in my closet. Even though I have the window closed here, the rumbling sound, it's trash day. So we have these big trash cans that the city makes us use so they can empty them with these automatic garbage trucks. Uh, they're on wheels. They're made of this hard plastic, and they're on wheels. So when you when you uh, move them around, they make a rumbling sound. And even though the window is closed, I heard that sound. So I'm trying to I'm trying to get good acoustics here, but uh, maybe I'm not uh, succeeding. <laughs> anyway, so let's see what's next. What will we have next here? Um, it's all about how, yeah. The next one is from AP. This went up at 4.59, still well before sunrise. Disappoint, this is a quote from the AP article, disappointed Democrats headed Wednesday toward renewing their control of the House, the House in Congress, with a potentially shrunken majority as they lost at least seven incumbents without ousting a single Republican lawmaker. By Wednesday afternoon, Democrats' only gains were two North Carolina seats vacated by GOP incumbents after a court-ordered remapping made the districts more Democratic. They were all wrong, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, Republican of California, told reporters about Democrats' assumptions of adding to their House numbers repeating a campaign theme Republicans used repeatedly against Democrats. He said, the rejection that we saw last night from the Democrats was that America does not want to be a socialist nation. The Republican coalition is bigger, more diverse, and more energetic than ever before. Democrats lost a majority Hispanic district in West Texas they expected to win after the GOP incumbent retired. And they lost a series of what seemed coin flip races, failing to defeat GOP incumbents in Cincinnati, rural Illinois, central Virginia, and suburbs of St. Louis, and several districts in Texas. Democratic Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York and the three other members of the so-called squad of young progressive women of color were easily elected, re-elected. And I said, moderate Democrats lost. So the new majority is not only smaller, but more intensely left-wing. I expect to hear more of the argument that Democrats lose when they skew moderate. Biden, if he ekes out a win, will be attacked from the left. Why didn't he accomplish a big win? Where was the landslide we were promised? Must be that he was too bland, too weak, too barely there. Trump will be gone. There will be no more monster to fight, just a relic of the old Democratic Party which dragged him over the finish line to edge out that terrible president who had to go and almost didn't. So I look, I look forward to seeing that fight, and I like the idea that any aggressive power moves that could have been had if there had been a landslide will turn into infighting where the party... Uh, uh, needs to reform itself and need, needs to work through some of its problems. But I think the left kind of in some ways has more power. They'll also be able to say, well, if you'd have gone with Bernie or Elizabeth Warren, who really stood for something, uh, you would have had that landslide. And the more moderate people to balance the party toward the middle, uh, some of them are gone, like Donna Shalala. The next post 
still before before sunrise at 5.40, was, this comes from the New Yorker. This is Susan Glasser in the New Yorker. Quote, whatever happens in the courts, Trump is all but certain to be his own vortex of uncertainty over the next couple of months until the inauguration. And that will be true even after there is a decisive resolution. A vengeance seeker in the best of times, Trump has already signaled before the election that he might fire a long list of officials in his government whom he views as insufficiently loyal or willing to go along with his orders. These include the director of the FBI, Christopher Wray, the attorney general, William Barr, the director of the CIA, Gina Haspel, and even in the midst of the pandemic, the nation's top infectious disease expert, Dr. Anthony Fauci. He could seek to fire them even if he loses, or perhaps especially if he does. Even defeated, Trump could use his executive powers to wreak significant additional damages before January 20th. He could break norms and traditions even more than he had than he has already, and pardon his family, friends, cronies, even potentially himself. He could undermine public confidence in a coronavirus vaccine or stop the government's fight against it altogether. There are many scenarios for the havoc we might see. Close quote. I wonder if we'll miss this Trump-specific alarmism if or when Trump goes away. Of course, he won't go away. He'll regroup within media and carry on the havoc from the outside. He won't withdraw in humiliation at this seeming rejection. He'll feel immensely loved by true Americans, unjustly ousted by his enemies, and stronger than you can possibly imagine. And I put a link on stronger than you can possibly imagine. It's the Obi-Wan Kenobi line. If you strike me down, I will become stronger than you can possibly imagine. So... You, you defeat Trump. You can't really defeat him. You may uh, strike him down in this particular election, but that will cause him to have more power. I mean, that's the kind of person he is. He doesn't accept. No. He keeps going. All of the attacks. He gets power from the attacks. He goes farther. And uh, the people who love him love him more. They love to see him fight. He's a fighter. Well, from the outside, it'll be so much easier to fight. It'll be all entertainment. The idea that, hey, you shouldn't use power that way. Well, he won't have power. He'll only have the entertaining speech that has gotten him as far as it has. He'll be, as I've said, liberated. And he'll also be threatening to come back into politics and defeat uh, Joe Biden the next time around. I enjoy, back to the post, I enjoyed Glasser's reference to the idea that the outrageous President Trump might pardon himself. I used that idea on a constitutional law exam 20-some years ago. It was a current topic back there, back then, and I linked to a Slate article from December 1998. Can President Clinton pardon himself? December 30th, 1998. President, quoting from the 1998 article, President Clinton promised this month not to pardon himself. It's surprising to see Clinton voluntarily relinquish a legal weapon, but even more surprising that he had his hands on it in the first place. Can the president really pardon himself? No one knows the answer. 
The Constitution says that the President shall have the power to grant reprieves and pardons for offenses against the United States, except in cases of impeachment. This sentence, like many in the Constitution, can reasonably be interpreted in several ways. And since no court has ruled on this issue because no president has ever tried to pardon himself, it remains an open question. The simplest interpretation is that a president can pardon any federal criminal offense, including his own, but cannot pardon an impeachment. In other words, Clinton is free to immunize himself from criminal prosecution, but has no power over Congress. So he could be impeached, but then after he's impeached, there can't be a criminal proceeding against him. A competing interpretation is that the power to pardon, except in cases of impeachment, means that a president cannot pardon someone who's been impeached or at least cannot pardon the offenses which led to impeachment. Obviously, that's all different from all the other many things that the president could be prosecuted for that he wasn't impeached for. Trump, like Clinton, was impeached, but um, there were other there are many other things that could be that Trump could be charged with other federal crimes beyond the particular thing that he was impeached for. So even if you took that second interpretation, well, there's more to that Slate article, and I guess there is an argument that could be made that the president can't um, can't pardon himself. Anyway, in 2015, Bill Clinton, and, and this is me now back to the post. Bill Clinton, no longer in possession of the pardon power asserted that the president does not have the power to pardon himself. He just said no when asked, which, of course, would get zero credit as an answer on a con law exam, where it's all about the reasons you can elaborate. You've got to demonstrate your knowledge of the methodologies of constitutional interpretation. That's what matters. So if you took my exam back then, or if you're trying to imagine how I would grade the exam and that I am in possession of the answer to the question, I'm not interested in the actual yes or no answer to the question when I give the exam. I want the student to elaborate the arguments on both sides, and then they can pick the better what they think is the better argument. But uh, I didn't care which, which argument they picked. It wouldn't have any effect on the grade. Your grade would be entirely based on how well you went through the various methodologies of textualism and structural reasoning and so forth. And then it was also important that you see that you could make an argument that whatever the interpretation of the pardon power is, it's not a, it's um, not an issue that the court can resolve. That it's something that's textually committed to the executive branch. So the president's idea of what he can pardon would be uh, conclusive. So that there's a political question doctrine analysis that you'd also need to have. So Bill Clinton's answer of just no. Obviously, he didn't par try to pardon himself, uh, and now it's President Trump whose pardon power is an issue. Speaking in 2018, it's not surprising that Bill Clinton said no, but the person who asked him the question, I think it was somebody like uh, maybe Stephen Colbert, one of these talk shows, uh, did not go on to say, why not? President, president has the Clinton Constitution says the president has the pardon power doesn't say that he can't pardon himself, what would be the argument to read a limitation on the pardon power when it doesn't say that he can't pardon himself? At least try to answer that question, but you know, you never get constitutional analysis actually done before your eyes, not by anyone who is really into politics. Anyway, 
also quoted at that that 2018 article was a tweet from President Trump, and he said, as has been stated by numerous legal scholars, I have the absolute right to pardon myself. But why would I do that when I have done nothing wrong? And I said, there's a strong assertion that the president has the power. Then an enigmatic question that contains another assertion that he did nothing wrong. And yet it's obvious why someone who'd done nothing wrong might want a pardon. A president may have powerful enemies who are threatening to prosecute him, even though, in his opinion, he did nothing wrong. Next, I've got a tweet from Andrew Sullivan, and he's responding to a tweet from Karen Atia. And she says, white women again. So she was linking to, wait, let me click on this. I have to remember what she was. She was linking to a headline that said 52% of white women voted for Trump in 2016. And New York Times exit polls predict, predict this to be 55% in 2020. So she said, white women, again. <laughs> she seen, I think she's a black woman. Uh, and Andrew Sullivan said, making their own decisions on various issues according to their own different beliefs and convictions. Why on earth is that a problem? It's success. So this is the idea that women aren't supposed to vote for Trump, white women, again. Oh, these disgusting people are still there. You think you're one of the groups that isn't considered disgusting. How can you possibly be, be such? All groups are, are subjected to that today. Well, and it's still before sunrise. The next post is from 6.08. That's still before sunrise. This is the last pre-sunrise post. So, so far, they're all before sunrise. This is from Damon Linker at The Week. The left just got crushed. See my theme this morning. Quote, so much for the democratic fantasy, the one that seemingly never dies of unobstructed rule. Democrats didn't just want to win and govern in the name of a deeply divided nation's fractured sense of the common good. No, they wanted to lead a moral revolution. Just to step out of the quote and say this. Remember, they had this idea battle for the soul of the country. After we were deciding on what our soul would be. So back to the quote. No, they wanted to lead a moral revolution to transform the country, not only enacting a long list of new policies, but making a series of institutional changes that would entrench their power far into the future, pack the Supreme Court, add left-leaning states, break up others to give the left huge margins in the Senate, get rid of the Electoral College, abolish the police, rewrite the nation's history with white supremacy and racism placed at the very center, ensure equity, not just in opportunity, but in outcomes. Hell, maybe they'd even establish a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Nothing from the toxic progressive fantasy wish list will come anywhere close to passing. Instead, we will have grinding, obstructive gridlock. Some will demand that Biden push through progressive priorities by executive order, but every time he does, the country will move closer to witnessing a conservative backlash that results in Republicans taking control of the House and increasing their margin in the Senate in November 2022. 
rendering the Biden administration even more fully dead in the water. Close quote. There's another one of those dying metaphors. Dead in the water. Could you be dead in the water and then even more fully dead in the water? Dead, dead, dead. Things are dead. And there's going to be grinding obstructive gridlock. This was the last post I put up before going out on my sunrise run, the one where I told you I felt like it dawned on me. I won. I got what I wanted. Nobody else got what they wanted, but I got what I wanted. Grinding obstructive gridlock. Yeah, I like the friction on the exercise of power. Good, good. Grinding obstructive gridlock. Hmm, tasty. Well, so now we jump ahead to 8.35, and the post is, What did Michael Bloomberg get for his money? He spent more than $1 billion running as a candidate, completely and an embarrassingly failed, and then spent over $100 million on Biden in Florida and $15 million in Ohio and Texas. And Biden lost all of those states, Business Insider reports. What an outstanding record of fruitless political spending. I was going to say, this record will last for ages, but then I realized, no, it will be smashed within the next 10 years. Don't you see why? Bloomberg is super rich with $55 billion, but that only puts him at number 14 on the Forbes list of richest people in America. Jeff Bezos, number one, has more than three times that much money. Why wouldn't he spend $3 billion or more if he ran for president or just wanted to back one party's candidates? And since Trump won the presidency in his first run for office, spending his own money, why wouldn't other business folk think they have a shot? Just because Bloomberg failed so badly? Some will resist the lure, but not all. Somebody's going to have the vanity and extra money to think they can be the next Trump, and they're not going to be the next Bloomberg. In any case, Bloomberg was not a newcomer to politics. He'd been New York City mayor for 12 years, but he wasn't just parachuting, so he wasn't just parachuting in with his business expertise and money. He was more grounded in political reality. These other billionaires don't have that limitation. They can think, if Trump could do it, why, why, why wouldn't they use their money to get all of that attention? What's to lose? I mean, I guess the main check is that the rest of the business that they do would be threatened if they got political and that it's better to stay outside of politics. We'll see how well that check works. Now, the last post that's gone up today is, um, oh, it's a column by Charles M. Blow of the New York Times. His column is, Exit Polls Point to the Power of White Patriarchy. Some people who have historically been oppressed will stand with their oppressors. Blow finds it unsettling that so many people voted for Trump, especially that more Hispanic and black people voted for Trump in 2020 than in 2016 which he attributes to the power of the white patriarchy and the coattail it has of those who depend on it or aspire to it. He, this is a quote of his. Some people who have historically been oppressed will stand with the oppressors and will aspire to power by proximity, Blow theorizes. They're susceptible to Trump's brash, chest-thumping and alpha male dismissiveness and in-your-face rudeness. So you see where he's going with that. Uh, these statistics came out that 
Trump improved his numbers with all of the groups except white men. So the idea that he represents white patriarchy is belied by these numbers where it's white males who were the ones who were less supportive of Trump the second time around. So you have to think of, well, what happened with them in their lives? Uh, meanwhile, all the other groups, including Hispanics and Blacks, um, were voting more for Trump. 17% of black males voted for Trump this time around. And I thought it was interesting that Blow used this idea of coattails. The usual cliche about coattails is that, they lead, that the lead candidate is able to bring along lesser candidates. He has long coattails and they ride in on the coattails or they grab the coattails and are pulled along. Blow's image is that white patriarchy has the coattail of those who depend on it. That is, the weak person is wearing the garment with long tails and the oppressors are grabbing onto them. But what kind of people wear a coat with tails? A tail coat is a fancy, fancy outfit that you would wear uh, like a Fred Astaire. I put a little embed of him dancing to the song Top Hat, White Tie and Tails, you know. It's the white tie outfit with the long tails in back and it goes with a top hat. I'm stepping out, my dear, to breathe an atmosphere that simply reeks with class. And I trust that you'll excuse my dust when I step on the gas. But anyway, but let's look closely at what uh, Blow is saying here. He is showing a lot of disrespect for any minorities who voted for Trump because he's accusing them of having this false consciousness where they're standing with their oppressors and with this oppressor Trump's brash alpha male attitude is something that they grab onto because they're just that oppressed, right? They're so oppressed that they, that they go along with this stuff. And that's, you better vote for Democrats. You better vote on the left, or I will say that you, you're just benighted. You're just in the dark and uh, you don't even know what you're doing. But what I selected out and featured at the top of the post is something I haven't read yet, and that's the top-rated comment. It had over 1,500 upvotes. And I read some other comments as well, and this comment, uh, and those, com those other high-rated comments are also saying similar things, very much attacking Charles Blow. But this one by far had the most upvotes, and I want to read it. Could we maybe just accept that identity politics isn't an effective political strategy? And could Democrats just stop with it like now? I'm a black woman who votes Democratic consistently. Not once did I hear a Democratic candidate in this election cycle speak directly to my concerns and needs as a black woman. My vote for Biden was to remove Trump not because I felt the Democratic Party had a vested interest in my concerns. And by the way, the concerns of black people and women in particular extend far beyond police brutality, an overwhelmingly black male issue that has taken up all the air in the room when we speak of black injustice. As a mother and small business owner, my issues regarding race surround around the poor teaching of history in public education that often skims over slavery and Indian removal, lack of access to capital for my business, despite black women being one of the fastest growing entrepreneur groups. 
and poor maternal female health. Black women receive worse health care and have worse outcomes than white women. But by all means, continue to patronize and tell me that I should vote Democrat because I am a black woman. I understand that representation matters, but identity politics as a complete political strategy is infantilizing and condescending, and it needs to stop, close quote. Reading that out loud, now I notice that she said, uh, you're telling me that I should vote Democrat. And not she didn't say vote Democratic. Although at the top, she said, I'm a black woman who votes Democratic consistently. And then later she said, you're telling me that I should vote Democrat. To say Democrat without the ick at the end is characteristic of people who are not Democrats, I think. So maybe this is a conservative black woman who um, is getting her attack in against Charles Blow, but the important thing isn't what she is. She purports to be something, whether she is or not, I don't know, but she's just very highly rated by New York Times readers. So it's a select group, the New York Times readers, and they're giving her a lot of votes. And there's notice she's saying, uh, could Democrats just stop with the identity politics? Well, it's so much of what the Democratic Party is and here's this strong message, message, stop doing that. And it's coming directly at Charles Blow, who has the pla a black man who has the platform of the New York Times, and he's really doubling down on the idea that identity politics is what it's all about, and that you can't not vote Democrat. Democrat, ick. Me, I didn't vote. I'm not on either side. I'm standing back and watching these people and giving you what I think. And as I said, I've been feeling very good about the position I took, which was, I'm not participating. I'm not, I don't want either of these things. And I'm not just going to pick the one that I think is less bad than the other, because I think even that is bad. And if I could have planned it this way, maybe I would have planned it this way, that Biden wins, but he only wins very narrowly. The very inflammatory uh, character of Trump is uh, set out of power, but in a position where he can go into media and speak very strongly, very vigorously, the actual president isn't going to have much power because he's sort of a relatively bland, weak guy, but also because he didn't have the landslide he was supposed to have. He only just barely made it in. And then also he's generally been something of a moderate or the vague character all along. Uh, meanwhile, he's not, I don't think, I hope he doesn't get the Senate. So I really like that the Senate stays in the hands of the Republicans so they can be a break on any kind of wacky, aggressive legislation. And then over there in the House, I don't think the Republicans have a realistic chance to actually get the majority, but the majority that the Democrats have is diminished and weakened, and the idea that the public doesn't really like what they have to offer, but there's just not enough on offer, uh, is hopefully a break on what the House is, is able to do. And then there'll be this infighting that's going to have to happen among the Democrats, especially in the House, as you have these really left-wing people mixed in with the old guard who are sort of Biden-like and bland. Um, I like that. As I said, the grinding gridlock, I'm just fine with that. Um, I like that nobody has too much power here and that the really strong character Trump will be repositioned where he can speak more directly to people. And I'm thinking 
and I'm hoping that will have a good effect. So uh, that wasn't precisely my plan, but looking back on what happened in my own behavior, refusing to vote, I'll adopt that retrospectively as my plan. That's my plan. I think that's the best we can do at this particular moment. I think we're going into a sort of calming, resting period politically. And let's hope something uh, good comes out of it. Maybe the moderate Democrats can get together with some of the Republicans, or maybe things that we can agree on uh, will come together. Another thing that's going to slow Biden down, of course, is also the pandemic. He'll come into office with that in front of him to deal with, and we'll get to see that he probably won't be able to handle it any better than Trump did, and we'll be brought down to earth about a lot of things. I know that sounds dull, and I don't want your life to be dull and boring, but I don't, I, I'm for boring in politics. I don't think the best life comes from watching and being a, treating uh, politics as sort of a spectator sport where you need to be there watching it all the time. I would like to get responsible people in there who will work hard and be competent, and we can trust them until the next election. I think watching them all the time is a stupid way to spend your life. I think, you know, get out there, see the sunrise, listen to music, listen to um, see the see the beauties of the world, and and limit how much time you spend. Uh, although I do recommend that you listen to the Alt House podcast. I hope I'm bringing bringing you a viewpoint on the political world that uh, filters it in a new way and is calming and serene and helps you transcend the politics that over-dominates American life. Find the better things. Find the more beautiful things. And uh, enjoy the rest of the day. It's a beautiful Indian summer here, and I'll bet it's beautiful where you are, too. So I'll see you tomorrow.